starting at verse 27 of, of chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do you say I am? Or who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone who would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in his adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And we give thanks to God for for this reading. Good, uh, good morning. Um, it is, um, I always come back to Kirkpatrick with, with very mixed feelings. I do, I do, because I love being back here, um, but every time I come I have to write a sermon. Um, and I'm sure you probably feel the same way. You know, we love having you back here, Stephen, but every time you come we have to listen to one of your sermons. Just before we come to uh, share together in God's word, let's, let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you now. We have heard from your word. And Lord, as we, as we come to think about it, we pray that you would, by your spirit, be with us all. Be with me as I, I speak the words that, that I believe you have given me to say. Be with us all as we hear those words. By your spirit, use them to encourage us, to challenge us, to grow us in you. Amen. Some of you uh, may be old enough to remember the the controversy that surrounded the release of um, Monty Python's The Life of Brian. It was 1979, if any of you do remember that and think it was a bit less. It was banned in several countries and attacked for being massively blasphemous and making a complete mockery of the Christian faith. And it absolutely does. Although I imagine most of the people who gave off about it probably never actually saw it. But the interesting thing is that in this movie, which tries so hard to ridicule Christians, 
There is a real core of truth that helps us to grasp something that we rarely think about, but is a major problem for us and is a central theme of the passage we're going to be thinking about today. And it's this. Do we follow a Messiah of our own making? A Savior who suits our wants and our desires? Or do we follow the real Messiah? The one who actually has the power to save us and give us real and lasting life. No matter the cost or sacrifice that it might lead us to experience here and now. In the life of Brian, Brian is born in the stable next door to Jesus. And throughout his life, he is constantly mistaken for the Messiah by people who want to put their own agendas for political power or liberation or sexual freedom or health and wealth and ease onto him. They take everything that he says out of context and try to prove what they've already decided they want to believe by using his words. Even when Brian's mother screams that infamous line to his followers, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy, it makes no difference. Because all they care about is having a Messiah that suits them and doesn't cost them anything. And I wonder, is it, is it often the same for us? This morning we're going to be delving into this passage, thinking about who this Jesus really is and what he says about himself and what it means to truly follow him. Mark is a short gospel. It's filled with lots of quick, continuous action. It moves the account along at pace, revealing to us, the readers, more and more of who this Jesus is and the kingdom that he has come to bring into being, even as those around him seem to miss it again and again. But here we join the the narrative at a, a moment where there's a little break in the action. It's about the halfway point of the gospel, and it's also the the turning point of Jesus's ministry. From here on out, as he starts to make his way towards Jerusalem and that final fulfillment of his mission, he's going to be much more explicit about who he is and what he's come to do. Here we find Jesus on the road, He's chatting to his disciples, his friends, and he asks this question. Who do people say I am? It's almost a a bit of a, a diagnostic question. He's been ministering to these people for a while, teaching, healing, showing his power over nature, demons, even death. But he's also been very careful, careful to try and keep a lot of what he's doing secret. The focus of this ministry is about to change. He's going to be increasingly open as it gears up towards this final confrontation with the religious establishment. And it seems he's he's kind of taken stock of where his mission is at. And of course, all sorts of notions are going around about Jesus. That he and John the Baptist are, are the same person. That he's Elijah, the prophet who was said was going to return before the Messiah came. Some others recognize him as a prophet or a good teacher, but it's, it's all a bit confused. And it's the same in our world today. People are really confused about who Jesus is. Some say he never existed, or he was an invention of the church, 
or he was just a good teacher, or he was a terrible teacher, or he was a con man. Some say he's one of many ways to reach God. Some say that he's a a prophet who's come on behalf of a different God. And increasingly people say, who cares who he is? But just like the, the people of Judea, I think although there's, there's mass confusion in the world about this guy, Jesus, there's still a lot of curiosity. What I find is that although non-believers generally don't want to come to church, they might not want to come to an event that we run, they're reasonably interested in finding out more about this guy, Jesus. He still intrigues people. They wonder, who was this guy that has shaped so much of history and is still being talked about all the time? And the major way that they find out is when we get serious about building strong friendships with people outside the church. Then we have this this incredible opportunity to invite them to maybe find out that little bit more about Jesus. And they might just trust us enough to say, yeah. And there are loads of great resources out there to help us. There's John one-to-one stuff that you can go through uh, that has all the answers in it. You just talk it through. There are great Bible study series out there, like the the Good Book Guides. There are little six-part discussion series with a a leader's guide in the back with lots of ideas and answers and thoughts. Um, The one on Mark is by Tim Chester. It's really good stuff. You don't need to be a Bible expert or a great communicator to do this stuff. There's, there's resources out there that do all of the work for you. You just need to be willing to ask. And even if people say no, the door is now open. They can come to you in a month, in a year, in 10, and they'll know that you're there, willing to explore this stuff with them. Um, last year, uh, as part of my work here, I was down at Gospel in the City, and we were doing some of this work with people, of trying to help them to, to meet with people one-on-one and share uh, some of the Gospel. And I was meeting up with a guy a few times. He was keen to start doing one of these one-to-ones. Um, he was a lawyer, regularly stood up in front of people in court, was brilliant at making uh, great arguments, but he was terrified of doing a one-to-one Bible study. So we met up, we had lunch a few times, he paid, it was great. But I took him through the material, showed him that everything that he needed was there right in front of him. And then I sort of asked, who, who are you planning on doing this with? And he said there were a few colleagues in work who, who knew he was a Christian and they seemed reasonably interested. But the first person he was going to ask was his teenage son. His son who, who sort of been struggling to, to get his head around why he should go to church, what it was all about. And last I spoke to him, they're still at it. Slowly working through John once a week for 20 minutes. But his son is now really enjoying being at church. Because he's grasped just a little bit more of who Jesus really is. Most of the people I've seen come to faith have been people who have come to church with someone who has invited them. Who's maybe laid a little bit of that groundwork with them. And over time, sitting under God's word, the spirit has begun that process of change within them. That's the story of some of you guys. 
So who is it? Who in your family, your friends, your street, your work, who could you in some way invite to come and see the real Jesus? The Jesus that is revealed to us in his word. We've seen the people are confused. They believe all sorts of false notions about Jesus. But are the disciples much better? Jesus narrows his question. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the group. On the surface, he seems to get it. He says, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. Messiah and Christ, they both mean anointed one, the long-awaited one who would rescue and restore God's people that they were waiting for. And if you read this account in Matthew 16, you'll see that Jesus praises Peter for what he says. He tells them that this, this has been revealed to him by God the Father. But we don't get that in Mark. And it's interesting that Mark decides to leave that out. You see, since very early in church tradition, it was stated that Peter was actually Mark's main eyewitness source. This could explain why, why Matthew and Luke, when they come to write their accounts, seem to use a lot of Mark um, in doing it. Because a lot of it is from Peter. And perhaps the, the praise that Jesus gives to Peter is left out here because Peter's been reflecting back and he's thinking, yeah, I really shouldn't have been praised for that because I just didn't get it. And the first sign that there's a bit of trouble here is that Jesus' response to this brilliant declaration of Peter is to say to him, tell no one. And he says the same in the account in Matthew as well. Tell no one. Jesus isn't really a great evangelist at this point, is he? We don't come every Sunday and tell you, you know what, guys, don't tell anyone about what we've said here today. But Jesus doesn't want to get out at this stage that he's being referred to as the Messiah. Why? Because he knows that people have got the concept of the Messiah all wrong. Even his followers. So the people don't get Jesus. The disciples are a bit closer, but there's something just a little bit off about even their understanding. And so Jesus now begins to reveal what this Messiah really looks like. Verse 32 tells us that he spoke plainly. There's no parables here, no secrecy. Jesus sets out his mission before the disciples. This is the first of three times that he does it in the next couple of chapters. So what does he say about the work of the true Messiah? Firstly, he, he identifies himself as the son of man. This sometimes uh, confuses people. People think this is a reference to Jesus's humanity. He's son of God, but he's also son of man. But actually, it's a, it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, 
and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is identifying himself here as one sent from the Father with the authority and power of the Father. Son of man could almost be translated as God-man or divine man. Jesus is saying that the Messiah is not just an anointed one, not just a new prophet, a new king. He's God himself on earth. And what must God do now that he is incarnate, now that he has come in power among his people? How is he going to bring about this new everlasting dominion, this kingdom for all peoples? Well, this passage says that he must suffer many things and be rejected, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. Notice that double use of the word must. This is not some political revolutionary like all the others who were around at this time, claiming to be the Messiah and ending up facing Roman punishment. This isn't Jesus realizing partway through his, his time on earth that actually he's kind of annoyed the establishment a wee bit too much and he's sort of thinking this whole thing isn't going to end well. No, this is Jesus setting out God's preordained plan. The plan to deal with sin. That the God-man would die as a sacrifice, a perfect, sinless sacrifice on our behalf, so we could be made clean of all our dirt and wrongdoing and be able to be part of this eternal kingdom, as the resurrection shows us. And this isn't new. This isn't a new concept that that Jesus is coming up with. This is the same rescue plan that God has set out throughout his word. First mentioned to us in Genesis 3.15, the son of Eve who would crush the serpent but be bruised in doing so. We see it with Abraham, asked to sacrifice his only precious son, and at the last minute, God stops him and says, I will provide the sacrifice. And he does. We see it in Exodus when the firstborn are saved by the blood of the unblemished sacrificial lamb. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Of all the ways in which God's rescue plan is revealed to us again and again. And nowhere is it more abundant than in the prophets. Where this future suffering Messiah is revealed again and again. The one who would rescue and restore God's people, yes, but in a much bigger, grander, greater way than they could ever have imagined. The people don't get it. The disciples here represented by Peter, they still don't get it. And very often we don't get it either. Look at Peter's response. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Strong word that's used there. He intends to give him an absolute dressing down here. You can imagine what it might have been like. Peter pulling him aside. I've just told these guys that you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And you start going on about how you're going to die. You're the one who's meant to kick out the Romans. To restore and expand the kingdom of David. I've seen what you can do. The elders and the chief priests, they can't touch you. We're going to win this thing. Will you wise up? 
And Jesus just as strongly responds, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Remember when Satan's tempting Jesus in the desert? He brings him up to a mountain so he can see all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan is using Peter here to do something very similar. Peter's focus is on this world. His wants and needs and desires in the here and now. And he wants a Messiah. He wants a savior that's going to deal with those. But that isn't the Messiah that Jesus came to be. He came not to save just one people group temporarily and give them a good, prosperous life for a short while. He came to deal with the problem of sin. Sin that utterly destroys both our lives and our relationship with our Creator. Sin that means we are guilty of of constant betrayal against our King and means that we are deserving of nothing but the just and perfect judgment of a holy and righteous God. And yet, this God has shown us his determination to put things right. To show us his undeserved, unearned grace. To make a way for us through the sacrifice of Christ, one who perfectly fulfilled God's requirements and who on that cross took our sin onto himself and placed his righteousness onto us so that we can stand before God, not as his enemies, but as his adopted children and be welcomed by our Father into his perfect eternal kingdom of real, full everlasting life. That is what the Messiah came to do, what he has done for us. wonder, do you recognize him as your savior, as your Messiah? Or like Peter, do you have a false idea of who Jesus is and what he calls us to? Satan wants us to follow a Jesus who isn't real, one of our own making, one that can't in any way save us. We might say we, we follow Jesus. We might say we're, we're in the kingdom. But in our hearts, are we not so often more concerned with our little kingdoms than with his? Jesus goes on here to deal with this as he, as he talks about what it means to follow the true Messiah. Verse 34, we see he calls the whole crowd in. He says, this is so important. Everyone needs to hear this. We're called to take up our crosses. The crowd would have, would have understood this generally. Crucifixion was a, a well-known practice with criminals having to, to carry their own cross beams. But soon many are going to see it literally play out in Jesus' own life. Jesus here is, is calling us to, to be willing to suffer and even lose this life for the sake of advancing his kingdom. I wonder, do we take up our cross daily? Do we put ourselves out there as Christians to share in word and deed the grace that God has shown us through his son and offers to others? 
Do we show people that real life that we have because of the cross of Christ, even when it is foolishness to the world around us, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18? Foolishness that will undoubtedly cause a reaction and may well cause a negative one. Do we claim Jesus as our, as our suffering Messiah? But in our day-to-day lives, say, we're not willing to open ourselves up to suffer for him. Do we live a double life? We, we claim to be Christians. We, we come to church. We say all the right stuff, but we don't want any of it to get in the way of our lives. We might spend a lot of time doing Christian things, But actually, our meaning in life comes from our healthy bank accounts, secure jobs, nice houses and cars, good friends and healthy family, being comfortable and well-liked. We don't really want Jesus getting in the way of any of that. Our faith is something for the future. It secures our place in heaven. But actually, while we're here on earth, we're going to chase and pursue this world with everything we've got. This is the life we really care about. Verses 35 and 36 tell us that if if this life is where we place our hope and meaning, we're going to quickly discover that there's no life there. We know that. We live in a world, a culture that that celebrates the unrestricted death of babies as a beautiful choice. A world that says we must accept and endorse everybody's lifestyle and choices, even though they're often totally contradictory to one another. We live in an incredibly self-centered, individualistic society where people are totally free to look for meaning and fulfillment in any and every place they can imagine, and yet... This is one of the most depressed and anxious generations that we have ever seen. And the statistics say that amongst our young people, it's getting worse and worse. If this world is where you put your hope for real life, you're not going to find it. Eventually, it's all going to come crumbling down around you. It is only in Christ the true Messiah, the Savior that we find real and lasting life. When we put him first, give him the glory and live for him, even when it hurts, even if it ends in a cross, because that's where real life is found. It's only when we're in Christ that all the things of this world fall into their right and proper place. Are you focused on on heavenly concerns or human concerns? Is having it all in this broken, fallen world really worth your soul? Christ died so that we can have real and lasting life. Don't miss it so that you can have a pale, dead, hopeless imitation. In the last wee while, I've seen several so-called Christian leaders, if you're taking notes, look up, Christian leaders, apologizing for so-called offensive things that Jesus has said. 
Asking people to remember that Jesus was a, a man of his time. He didn't always get it right. Or they claim that certain statements were probably added later by a bigoted church. I wonder would they claim verse 38 is one of those. The problem is that too many people in our individualistic world are deciding what they want to believe about the world and then desperately trying to read it into the Bible. And where their fallen, broken worldview doesn't fit, well, the Bible must be wrong. Again, so many of us are tempted, just like Peter, to want a Messiah that suits us rather than the true, suffering, saving servant who calls us into his service. The Bible is God's living, active word, given to us by his spirit at work in the lives of the writers. It's the world that's broken. It's the world that's fallen. It's the world that's twisted out of shape. We need to form our worldview by looking at the pages of Scripture, not the other way around. God doesn't change his, he is perfect and his word is sure. If we want to be people who keep our eyes on the true Messiah, we have got to be people who are not ashamed of his word or his words. People who are immersed instead in his word, reading it, meditating on it, hearing it preached, growing in our love and understanding of the God it reveals, Father, Spirit, and Son, and the kingdom he came to make us a part of. Chapter 9, verse 1, tells us this kingdom of God has already come. In the death, resurrection, and sending of the Holy Spirit that followed Christ's ascension. Many, if not all of us, are sitting here today as part of that kingdom. That kingdom which has come and in the future at Christ's return will come in its totality. When the hope and joy and peace that we can have now in Christ will seem like nothing compared to the riches of his grace we will receive. But until that time, we are part of a kingdom in the midst of a battle. A battle with this dead and sinful world, both as the body of believers, the church, and as individuals. Individuals who, yes, are new creations in Christ, but who also remain part of this fallen, sinful world. We must always remember Jesus fulfilled this mission. Jesus did what he came to do. In his death and resurrection, the power of sin and death has been defeated. Satan has lost. The battle might rage on for now, but the victory is certain. The kingdom has come and is coming. So we need to keep our eyes on the true Messiah. Keep our hearts focused on the king who comes with his kingdom of life to replace this kingdom that might look like life, but is really dead. We need to make sure we're not following a Brian, a Messiah of our own making. One who is just an excuse for us to live however we want and think we're safe. We need to stay focused on the biblical Jesus, 
on all that he has done for us in saving us and calls us to do for him in grateful response. So how can we live for his kingdom instead of our own this week? How can we share this Messiah with others, people who think they don't need him, but are out there in the world desperately searching in all the wrong places for the life and the meaning that only he can give? Let's pray.